Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear author Walter Kern's talk at New St. Andrews, The Art of the Essay. Additionally, this week's recommend might be a little out of left field, but I wanted to point you guys to The Rhetoric Companion. This book is by best-selling author N.D. Wilson, as well as Pastor Douglas Wilson. For thousands of years, rhetoric, the art of a good man speaking well, was one of the pillars of Western civilization, and we need it now more than ever. The Wilsons have written a Christian rhetoric textbook accessible to any high school student or to the parents who never learned much about the subject themselves. For the Christian, manipulative sophistry is clearly out of bounds. But putting a careful thought into what constitutes eloquent speech and persuasive argument is not. What many people dismiss as a bunch of rhetoric is simply poor rhetoric. There is a Christian approach to the craft of memorable and effective expression, and it is the task of this book to lay out that approach. Get the Rhetoric Companion at canonpress.com. I am very excited to have Walter Kern here with us. I've been a fan of his for, I think, around 15 years, and he has written in many different forms and outlets, from Time Magazine to novels. Some of his novels have been adap- adapted into films. Uh, started out as a poet, and then moved towards being a playwright, and then novels and essays. Currently writing in Harper's. There's not a thing that I've read of his that I have not enjoyed. His most recent book, Blood Will Out, is about his experience having been duped by a shiny, serial-killing con artist. And the thing I love about his writing is an affection and an honesty. So he can be brutally honest and even eviscerating of his subject, but even, even so, always affectionate to them. It's not an easy thing to do uh, when you write about leaving Clark Rockefeller, this con man who uh, he had such an interesting relationship with. Also, descriptively, he can capture something in a way that sticks quite effectively. And there's one image I will have with me till the grave that came from the beginning of Blood Will Out, a scene in which he is picking up a paralytic dog (laughs) physically to put into a truck to drive from Montana to New York to deliver to Clark Rockefeller. And he feels the dog's heartbeat on the inside of the rib cage, and he feels it like a grasshopper jumping inside of a paper bag. You know, sort of just this tiny little faint tapping. And that one, I knew I was in for the duration of the book. And it's such an aside, it's such a small thing, but it's such a deft description. And it's the kind of description that exists throughout all of his work. So he's one of those writers where you can glean many, many things and steal many things from him, regardless of the subject matter. It's been a long time coming to get him here. I'm thrilled to have him uh, here and his willingness to come. I hope we can get him back. I'm, I'm hoping we can get Moscow some, just sort of in his routine, in his annual routine somehow, <laughs> to some capacity. We'll see, we'll see what we can do. So we're overfeeding him to that end uh, as, <laughs> as, as much as we can. Uh, will you please welcome Walter Kern.
I spoke earlier today on the art of fiction. Um, uh, St. Andrews is nothing if not um, very orderly in its um, thinking and its uh, directions to me. The art of the novel, the art of poetry, and the art of the essay. Tonight will be the essay. Um, you'll notice I have no notes in front of me, uh, nor do I have an idea in my head about what I'm about to say. <laughs> so enjoy the suspense <laughs> of watching a man stay one step ahead of his own confusion. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and confusion, I think, I'll take as my first theme because what is an essay? You can ask that academically and you have an experience writing them because few of you have probably written novels. Perhaps some of you have written poems, but they were probably to your eighth grade girlfriend. <laughs> but all of you, in order to be here, I would suspect, have written an essay. Um, and you have certain ideas about what the essay is based on the kinds of work you've done for classes, I'm not sure how St. Andrews uh, conducts its admission process, but you might have written an essay uh, in your application. Um, the essay is, to most people, quite familiar and rather dull uh, and obligatory form in which you convey information about a subject with some knowledge and argumentative rigor. But that's not the essay as art hate to tell you. The essay as art is that category of literature which is none of the above. It is that kind of writing that's not fiction, not reporting or journalism, um, and not, uh, obviously not poetry, um, but attempts to show the mind in action, I think. That would be my definition of the essay. You know, the word itself means kind of an attempt. You know, he essayed uh, a climb of Mount Whitney. You know, it means a good try. And, and I think most essays need not be anything more than a good try to answer a question which they usually make rather large, you know, beginning with Montaigne, on friendship, on love, whatever as an excuse to then put your mind at work and display what thinking feels like. And that's what a good essay does for me. It, it, it shows someone's sensibility, maybe their logical mind, maybe their lyrical mind, maybe their anecdotal, experiential, uh, storytelling mind, all in an attempt to give a uh, accurate, rich uh, record of how we come at the world intellectually. So I could give you all sorts of academic and abstract uh, uh, definitions, but I'll, I'll leave it there because what I can do that perhaps certain professors can't do is tell you how I go about writing an essay. Right now, my chief uh, uh, employed for money job is as an essayist for Harper's Magazine. Um, they have a a very storied opening essay in their magazine that goes back, I think, 150 years called The Easy Chair. 
And I think the very title of this essay department speaks to the definition I just laid down. Um, it's as though someone rather intelligent, rather amusing, rather experienced, one hopes, um, is addressing you in front of a fire, telling you what they think. Um, and it's not meant to be definitive. In fact, an essay that is definitive, an essay that comes to a final conclusion about friendship or love, is immediately suspect, at least in my mind, because essays traditionally attempt to uh, go after subjects about which there is a great diversity of, of opinion and really no final solution. Um, just as plot in fiction is often an excuse to get you reading uh, and the real experience of the book might be description of a place or uh, the uh, you know, um, elaboration of character, in essays the uh, central question, the theme, uh, the topic itself, I think is usually an excuse to invite you to that fireplace and just have a really great conversation. It's a one-sided conversation, but you know that's what writing is. Um, and uh, so when I got this job, I went back and looked at all the people who had done it in the past. Um, and there was a very sort of high, uh, uh, stuffy, uh, elegant, anglicized writer named Lewis Lapham, who was most recently uh, famed for doing this column. Um, and he spoke in long periodic sentences, and he made great elegant arguments with references to classical literature, and it was all you know, seemingly flawless and what the British would call a bit donish, uh, professorial, a little bit, you know, a little bit contemptuous of the idiot reader who needs to be, you know, uh, elevated. And I, th there was also a great Western historian named Bernard DeVoto who, who wrote this column at one time. And uh, it was all very uh, intimidating. And I thought, well, what can I do? How can I do this a little differently? How can I bring what I think is the art of the more contemporary essay to this traditional um, uh, spot in the magazine? And my answer was, I can be slightly chaotic, more chaotic than they would risk being. I can mix more sorts of, uh, more different forms of address than these people in the past did. I can invite you into my own unsettled confusion about various subjects. So my first essay, uh, I, you know, it's coming up. It's 3,000 words, uh, which is a kind of a medium length for a writer. It's, it's not a long uh, thing where you can wander, but it's long enough that you don't have to you know, get right to the point. And uh, I had no idea, no idea where to go. I mean, in the current world of confusion and you know, weird politics and strange cultural happenings, how do I announce my first uh, attempt at this, uh, you know, legendary easy chair column. I was in Las Vegas at the time. And uh, um, I was on a fellowship. And I, the day was coming closer and closer. 
you know, here I had to really, you know, make a signature statement. And I heard that there was, uh, sorry if this offends anybody, an adult film convention going on next to the university. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, you can't go wrong uh, with colorful scenes from an adult film convention. And, um, uh, you know, which reader is going to turn back from, you know, uh, that scene. Um, so I went over there desperate to find uh, a, a topic. And uh, it turned out that the biggest deal at this adult film convention was the um, uh, emergence of virtual reality as a new medium for adult film. And uh, so I get there, and I'd never tried virtual reality in any fashion, you know, I, 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 my first experience could be what it's like to climb the Matterhorn or drive, uh, you know, dive the great coral reef, but instead it was this, uh, um, <laughs> and I've really gotten myself in a pickle here, and uh, I, I sat down with a guy and I said, you know, um, can you show me your virtual reality world, um, it, it was a very, uh, highfalutin little Canadian company full of, you know, young programmers, and they put these goggles on me, and I was alone in a room with uh, an unclothed woman, and she was not only there life-size and three-dimensional, but because of various interactive features if you know what Xbox is, I was standing in a spot that was flooded with lasers and could read my movements and could adjust the movement of this uh, unclothed young woman um, accordingly, such that if I looked in her eyes, she would look back at me. The goggles could read my eye movements, such that if I walked around behind her, I could get a view of her from there. Um, and there was this uh, simulation of human interaction, intimate human interaction. There was, there was no you know, weird, uh, obscene uh, content to the world. It was just a demonstration that you could be in a room interacting with a life-size human being who had been scanned, uh, and they'd used a real model and scanned her in using a thousand cameras from everything. And I remember one time I got up on tiptoes and looked and I could see down under her tongue in her mouth. It was like that. And they also, and they also as I say, simulated eye contact and other things. And, you know, curiosity killed the cat. It's a journalistic errand, uh, obligation to go into unfamiliar territory, and I'd done so. But I, but, I, but I grabbed the goggles and I put them away and I walked out of the thing just frightened because I had had an actual uh, almost emotional reaction when this 3D moving hologram who I could walk 360 degrees around had looked me in the eye. I'd felt that weird lizard brain sense of social contact with another being. And yet I knew it to be a simulated being. And this stimulated some sense of the demonic in me, you know. Uh, what is it like to, that, that 
the future seems to belong to relationships between real people and digital ghosts. So I went home and I thought, well, I, if I can't get an essay out of that experience, I can't do it out of anything. Uh, <laughs> but, but what's the theme of that experience? Like I said, there's, there's something chilling and uh, unreal about it. But, you know, and then I thought, you know, here, here is the commonality between, and, and this is the beginning of the political year, this is January when the primaries are starting. I said, okay, what pornography, what else, what is it like, what other thing in the culture is pornography like? And I thought, politics. <laughs> Both exploit a sense of unreal connection between people, and both pornographers and politicians have a challenge, which is to continually arouse you with what you know to be a false reality. Um, the, the, the pornographers have, have, have hit on this 360 degree virtual reality thing because they have so worn out their audience with all the other, you know, simulations. And, and in the same way, uh, politicians are trying to convince you they're real, and they, they up the, they up the uh, ante continually. Every four years, it's as though we are supposed to forget the last four years when you know, we got all enthusiastic about somebody who promised things that didn't come true, uh, and yet they managed to do the trick over and over again. So I made this equation between politicians and pornographers, maybe not the most organic one, but I'd committed to it. And then, I started to think uh, uh, you know, about other sort of political phenomena that I found cre as creepy as I had found this synthesized young woman. And I thought about these emails that come into my box constantly. Um, Barack wants you to celebrate his birthday. Write a card. Um, or one I got you know, from Joe Biden, my friend Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Michelle wrote you yesterday. Uh, Nancy Pelosi wrote you today. You ignored them. What's going on? Aren't you going to help us? And once again, I felt that I was being addressed by what I knew to be some kind of a robot or computer program, but it was actually affecting my, my social self. Like, you know, maybe uh, I need to write and apologize or something, you know. <laughs> at, at, at the same time, my wife got an email from Barack, who, who only lets you address him that way in email, you know. Um, it, and it said, Amanda, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> it, ha it had her name. We've fallen out of touch. Um, you know, when I saw it, I for a second wanted to talk about, you know, whether the, she had somehow bumped into him at a bar recently, you know, or, you know, something was going on behind my back. And I thought, I thought both these things, this, 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 this ghostly, naked woman, and this fake Barack, and what I called Robo-Joe, Robo-Joe Biden, um, are attempting to stimulate in real people emotional responses, which we are helpless not to have in some way, because, you know, those buttons are deep in, in the person, you know. A fake person looks you in the eye, but 
you, you don't have immunity against feeling like you're being viewed. Uh, uh, you know, you get lectured by the President of the United States who you don't know from Adam on email and you kind of feel a little bad, like, you know, I got caught. I should have answered Michelle yesterday, you know. Um, <laughs> and then what I realized was that the only way you could answer these emails was by giving a donation. You can't actually write back. Um, you can't say, De you know, dear Barack, really sorry we've fallen out of touch. I've been busy. I know you have been too. Um, uh, let's meet up and whatever, you know. And you cannot have a relationship with this young lady either. In, but in both cases, your fantasy life is being stimulated in some way. Uh, and, 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 and inauthentic beings are addressing your authenticity and are trying to evoke a response, which seems deeply exploitive in both cases. In both cases, there is a promise that can't be fulfilled, a promise of human connection that simply cannot be had with a digital cloud shaped like a person, and a promise of sort of, you know, being a in political insider uh, that, you know, you find out the only option for fulfillment is sending $7 to, you know, uh, the Democratic National Committee. So here's my essay. How do we live in a world of simulated beings in which more and more we spend our days interacting with personages, figures who aren't really there? Um, do we become numb? Uh, to these forms of address? Do we become, uh, you know, do we start to slowly turn off our social self because it's constantly being poked at and prodded by computers and robots and holograms? Or, you know, how do we remain alive, sensitive, vulnerable human beings in this world? And so I started writing the essay and I got to a point um, where I realized that um, how can I put it, that to a large extent, as you live in this environment, you become uh, desensitized to actual people. That's not news. You'll often hear that people who, you know, look at adult film content become desensitized to their actual partners, which uh, is borne out by study. But, you'll all, but I never thought about the fact that having my fake leaders address me starts to make me think they're not real at all. You know, at least I remember, and I remembered once when I was a kid, my, my dad wrote a letter to President Nixon, and I found a letter from the White House on his desk. And it said, you know, dear Walt, thank you for writing. You know, we really appreciate your support. I, I know I do. Richard Nixon, and it had a signature on it. And I went thinking, my dad's kind of an important guy. Um, and, but, but even that had a personal touch that these, you know, sort of blasted emails don't. Even that had a feeling that there was a person at the other end. How do we feel when there's no person on the other end? And, and so it was a kind of essay, finally, about the alienation that's caused by uh, a sense of being besieged by inhuman simulacra. Now, 
I guess you could call the topic inauthenticity. How do you stay authentic in a world of inauthenticity? That's an essay. Now, and, I, and that is, is literally and uh, chronologically a uh, account of its mm, creation as I could give. Uh, at another point earlier in my career, I wrote the essay that I believed finally caused me to crack the code. And it was back in 2006 when I uh, quite confidently but wholly inaccurately predicted that people would get sick of digital reality and their iPhones and so on, and it would all be a fad that would blow over. Um, and uh, it was called The Autumn of the Multitaskers. And it was a piece that had three components. There was a scientific research component. It, it, it had been proven that people, when they divide their attention between you know, a phone, uh, listening to a person, um, and maybe watching TV, end up retaining not a whit of all three uh, sources of information. That literally multitasking, which was being portrayed at the time as the sort of um, uh, uh, wonderful talent of the new breed of mankind was in fact impossible. It was attention deficit disorder in a can. And, uh, um, and then I, I took a leap from that, which was basically a, a scientific argument about how technology had fragmented our attention, to um, thinking about our foreign policy. We were at that point uh, at war in Afghanistan and Iraq at the same time, and pretty much losing both. And I, I, I saw an essay, or I saw a, an interview, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld, in which someone had challenged him, can America really fight two wars, and what do we have to fight three? And he said, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. That was his sort of answer. But the fact was, it seemed at that point in our history that by dividing our attention between all these various conflicts, we were doing the same thing you do when you try to watch TV, send an email, and listen to music, getting none of them right. And then I thought even more specifically of um, a guy in my small town growing up who I thought was a genius. He was a backyard tinkerer. He had invented a car that was also a plane and also a boat. It looked like you know, some weird fusion of the three. And it was a car enough to get down to the water, at which point it sunk, and they dragged it out of the water in order to fly it, at which point it crashed. <laughs> and so here I had an image from my youth, a scientific study, a sort of grand political argument about how we were spreading ourselves too thin militarily, and they all seem to speak to the same point. And what I realized as I wrote it was that I didn't have to make transitions. In a good essay, the transitions are implicit. I could tell the story about how iPhones and watching TV deplete the mind of both experiences. I could lay in the other example. I could talk about the car that was also a plane that was also a boat. And all I had to do was set up each one in its own terms, one which is you know, uh, a recitation of uh, scientific research, one which is a story from my youth, the other which is you know, uh, something else, and they all work together. In fact, the more I, far out I went on this topic, 
the odder the little examples I found of it, the better the essay worked. Because as I say, an essay is about how the mind works. And the mind works chiefly, though I know you're taught through logic, it really works through association. Uh, logic is a great way to you know, win arguments, analyze them, uh, win debates. But in life, we are walking down the street and the smell of good food comes out of a restaurant. We remember my grandmother used to cook with that spice. And then remembering your grandmother, you think about the place you grew up and da 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 da. And by the end of the one mile walk, you've been 20 different places, but they're all in some sense that walk. And, and, and to me, a great essay has that same mysterious sense of coherence that comes of living life uh, mentally in real terms, where you know association, uh, metaphor, uh, jumping between levels, um, using different forms of rhetoric, storytelling, narrative-based uh, uh, writing, um, argumentative writing, and maybe even lyrical writing um, all come together. So having cracked the essay, I felt, with that piece, I sought to perhaps push my own formula too far. And I, I feel that like with the essay I just described about the, you know, the hologram and the presidential emails, uh, I, I waited for reaction. And Harper's, because it doesn't go on the internet, has a very slow reaction cycle. It's like at Time Magazine. You, when I used to work there, you'd write a cover story, and then two months later, from letters, you'd find out whether you know, anybody liked it. Um, at, at Harper's, it's similarly late. And I found out that no one had a clue what I was on about in that first essay. Um, you know, how the adult film convention related to the Joe Biden emails, related to uh, these other things, made no sense to them. I said, well, let's rein it in a little. Um, and, and, I, and as I've evolved, and I've now written four or five of them, I think I've done so somewhat successfully. But I always like an essay that mm, threatens to go a little out of control. And, and, and I'll describe for you now perhaps my favorite essay, and the way in which I think it ends up being about everything and uh, maybe nothing at the same time in that mysterious way. Uh, it's by the writer Annie Dillard. I don't know if any of you um, are fans of hers. But she wrote in the 80s a story about witnessing a uh, total solar eclipse in Yakima, Washington. And to me, it's, it's the greatest essay of the last 30 years. She sets out from Seattle to go see this eclipse. She fills us in a little bit about the superstitions associated with eclipses. So there's a little bit of historical writing. She talks strangely about a lot about her relationship with her boyfriend, who she's going to see it with. Then she settles, hunkers down in a motel the night before and talks about the bad art on the walls of the motel. Um, and you're, you're like, where is this going? I mean, if I didn't know they're about to view a solar eclipse, I don't know that I'd still be along for the ride. <laughs> then she goes out on a, a hillside at nine in the morning or something like this and is standing there as the, you know, shadow starts to move over the sun. And she goes from this sort of mm, trivia-obsessed, uh, 
you know, casual, modern resident of Seattle out on a bit of, you know, astronomical tourism to a instantly primitive, terrified, er human being watching as did our forebearers what would seem to be and you can't emotionally make not be the end of the world. She describes the eclipse in existential, she happens to be a writer of some Christian faith, in, in deep existential, um, spiritual, and almost apocalyptic terms. And, and it becomes suddenly uh, an essay about how you can be leading your life, you know, driving here, talking to your boyfriend in a bad motel, and suddenly find yourself in a situation of absolutely primal significance. And then, as eclipses do, it, it passes. She describes beautifully the sweeping of the shadow across the earth. She, she's across a wide valley. She can see the shadow coming at some amazing amount of speed calculated in the thousands of miles per hour, coming toward her, total darkness across the earth, and then sweeping over her. And right before it does, the world is bled of all color and becomes black and white. And she looks at her boyfriend and he, he looks almost like a, you know, an X-ray or an icon of a person. And then darkness goes over and then they're restored to the world. And she's finding herself back in ordinary reality. I've got to go back to the motel. How do I conjugate what has just happened? How do I synthesize the most terrifying, primitive, sense of the world ending with the fact that I've got to get back to Seattle tonight. And to me, that is our problem defined. You know, how do we experience the sacred and the ultimate at the same time, you know, we have to change the oil in our car. And, and, and it's been my touchstone as an essay because it managed to do two things. It managed to make, uh, life feel lifelike, it managed to be casual and sort of without any program, it didn't seem at the beginning to be, you know, arguing for or against anything. We're so used to, we're so used to people trying to convince us of something nowadays. Uh, so it had this stealth entry into a topic of ultimate significance, but then it dropped you again in the world of highways and breakfast all the other things. And, and, and it's become, as I say, my model. Now, another essay that I wrote that I was very proud of, which had a theme, but I didn't know how to um, treat it ultimately, was perhaps my favorite uh, work in the form by myself, which is called Confessions of an Ex-Mormon, which I wrote for the New Republic, and it was a cover story in, in Best American Essays. So if, if, if the world were to weigh in on my uh, essay writing work, it would have decided that this was the best, and I happen to agree. <laughs> it came, as I think the best ones do, from a moment, a momentary conjunction. Mitt Romney was running for president. I had been for a spell of five years as a teenager, a converted Mormon, along with my family, and had had great affection for the people I went to church with and the people I knew through church, and had had an interesting experience because anybody who knows Mormonism knows that it's a real hang together, you know, 
some would say insular, but others would say, you know, communitarian, uh, a church in which some of the teachings may strain belief, but the sense of neighborliness and dependence uh, and trust on your fellow man really is, is, is superb. And, and Mitt Romney was running for president, and they were starting to make fun of him. And I, I thought, you know, I can make fun of Mormonism because I was one. But I'm starting to feel weird about seeing this guy pilloried for wearing magic underwear and da-da-da-da and for supposedly being a sexist by virtue of the fact that there are, you know, strong gender roles in the Mormon church and so on. And, and I thought, like, you know, Mitt Romney's not defending himself properly. And it was clear from the campaign that his advisors had told him, don't make the Mormonism a big deal, Mitt. You know, so I thought, maybe I'll make it a big deal. Maybe I'll defend him. And, 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 and I thought, so what is it in me that wants to defend this? What is the good experience that I had uh, in, a, in a time frame that I usually think of as rather confusing and, and, and somehow maybe disillusioning? And so the essay became watching Mitt Romney on TV, being angry about how he was being treated, realizing that, you know, sometimes you find a part of yourself only when you see it attacked, and then going through a narrative of my own experience with Mormonism, which turned out to be really kind of remarkable. I mean, um, uh, you know, I not only talked about my uh, teenage years and my disenchantment, but how as a rather mm, screwed up 40-year-old, uh, when the, or when the movie Up in the Air was made down in Hollywood, I got it in my head that I was a pretty important character. Um, you know, George Clooney was going to be playing me, I decided, in, in, in the movie. Uh, not that the character was based on me originally, but I started to think, you know, it would sound good to say, yeah, he's playing me. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and I'd been invited down by a big director and so on, and so it was really starting to go to my head, and I was really, you know, talk about walking into the denim temptation. You know, I was invited down to Hollywood where I really never spent time. And suddenly, you know, people were treating me like I was a big deal. I decided I was a big deal. Started falling into all kinds of bad habits, really stupid things. I'd been divorced a few years ago and was vulnerable to every, you know, false uh, comfort that the world offers. And, uh, I decided I was gonna live in Hollywood. I, I, I was gonna live there for a few months. I didn't wanna go back to my cold Montana hometown where, you know, yeah, you're the writer, you know, which is just a step down from the really good foreign auto mechanic. Um, uh, As an aside, I, I often play the thought experiment of, okay, the world is destroyed, civiliz or not destroyed, but civilization breaks down, our government can't help us. We all have to gather in the square and pool our talents and, and figure out who can do what. And one guy says, you know, I'm a great shot with this rifle, I can get us game. And another guy says, you know, I can keep the plumbing going. And I, I'm like, I can write essays. Um, uh, uh, We'll need them someday. Um, <laughs> once we've reconstituted civilization, won't you want a nuanced portrait of what it was like? You know. Um, so you know. Any, anyway, so I'm down in Hollywood 
feeling important where writers are, you know, people who make a lot of money and are the engines behind movies and scripts and so on, getting a lot of egotistical gratification and falling apart. And uh, I decide I need to get a little place and I don't know where to live. So I look on Craigslist. I know there are guests. I know from the O.J. Simpson trial that you can live in guest houses of big mansions. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I, I see that there are guest houses for rent. I, I, I make a list of three of them. I go to the first one, and the guy says, you know, I want you to get off my property in Beverly Hills. I, want, I saw your credit rating before you got here, and I don't want you anywhere near here. It has, my divorce had ruined that. Uh, I went to the next one, and the guy said, you know, you're going to need to, this is a very nice guest house. You're going to need to put down a huge security deposit, and you're going to need to pay two months in advance, and da-da-da-da. I couldn't do it. The third house I drove up to, a guy said, hey, man, I saw on your Wikipedia that you're uh, LDS. Come on in. Well, what's the rent? Oh, we'll figure it out. I don't have any furniture. Oh, we'll give you furniture. Um, and, and these people who had uh, created this sort of, uh, rented this uh, mansion in Hollywood together. One was a reality star on Dancing with the Stars. Another was a real estate agent. All these Mormons had come to Hollywood and decided to live together to successfully um, keep at bay the temptations of Southern California. And they, and they took me in. No credit check, no anything, da-da-da-da. You know, uh, we had picnics. It was suddenly, you know... Uh, <laughs> You know, here I was a sophisticated guy, and, and, and suddenly it was like, hey, man, we're going to go down to the beach and uh, roast hot dogs and, and stay up and tell ghost stories tonight. <laughs> and these guys were, they were all 24. Um, <laughs> and then one day, one day I'm in my guest house, and, 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 and this girl, Christine, who was a real estate agent, um, who was dating Bobcat Goldthwaite, um, kind of thing that happens even to Mormons in Hollywood, uh, <laughs> comes over to me with this big uh, three-ring binder, uh, sort of like the Mitt Romney when he talked about we have women in binders. Well, she had women in binders, too. She came in, she said, I noticed you're single, and uh, I'm a member of the singles ward down in Santa Monica, and I'd just like to show you a few faces <laughs> to see if any of them interest you. And she sat down with me on the couch and showed me 50 of the most eligible and attractive women who are too young for me that I had ever seen. <laughs> Concluding it with the statement, I mean, this, I, it's a riot. Who cares about the essay? Um, uh, Concluding it with the statement, and I'm going to tell you something. I happen to know that Larry King's wife is going to leave him. She's LDS, and uh, I think you'd like her a lot. Anyway, you know, between the cookouts, and, the, and, then, and then we would gather to watch TV every other night. And we, we'd, we'd make like jello Mormon food, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and we'd all gather around the TV to watch Dancing with the Stars, which one of the person was in. And she knew, it was weird because she knew the outcome of every show but was contractually uh, silenced from talking about it. So, you know, you'd keep looking up at her like, is, is this the one where you get kicked off? You know, and, um, 
and, 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 you know, I'm 44, and I basically, uh, I can marry any 25-year-old woman I want. Uh, uh, you know, I've got endless jello. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, free furniture. Uh, the rent, what about the rent? You know, I hope you can get it to us, whatever, never mind. Um, in this walled Beverly Hills mansion. And these people were saving my life because my alternative hangout was not a place I could go anymore. I don't drink, and I could feel myself being tugged back to drinking alcohol, which is, for me, not an option. And uh, they saved my life. So between uh, my youth, the experience of seeing Mitt Romney made fun of, um, remembering how much I'd made fun of this church, and having this recent experience uh, on this, what I called uh, um, Beverly Eden, um, <laughs> uh, I realized and reconstituted my deep affection for the way Mormons look out for each other. And I wrote an essay which combined all these threads, the political, the autobiographical, and then because whenever you talk about Mormonism to a wider audience, you just have to repeat some of the history. It's just too juicy. Um, and, uh, and so some sort of religious history. And I launched this thing in the New Republic, which is as secular a magazine as exists. It basically believes that, you know, um, the top tier of the Democratic Party is the reigning aristocracy of earthly humans um, and, and uh, need not address metaphysical, uh, the mystical, the, the moral at all, as long as it is talking about policy and those people. So they run this cover story, I think because they thought it made Mormons look kind of bad. Um, I've always had a vice of working for the magazines at which I am the most conservative writer and then being fired by them ultimately. <laughs> because they always make the assumption that because I went to Princeton and Oxford I must be like them. And, and then they start seeing glitches and contrary evidence but they don't believe it. Um, and then they finally go, you know, you're a reactionary, get out of here. Um, uh, so, so I wrote this cover story, and it was the most gratifying act of literary communication in my life. And that's, again, what I feel the essay is great at. It is a communicative act. You know, when you write fiction, you create a spell. You create a trance. Um, it isn't important that you even, as a reader, know who the author is finally. You can enter that world and enjoy it and um, you know, uh, be entranced by it and, and spellbound without that information. An essay is ultimately a personal act of communication. Um, I don't want to read something on friendship or on, you know, Mormon brotherly love by anonymous. I, I, I need to know that this is someone's experience in order to ground it with any, in any sort of authority or uh, authenticity, I have to feel like I'm one-on-one -on -one as a reader with a particular mind, not a mind that's obscured behind a wall of make-believe, or as in poetry, a writer whose language is in itself so, you know, um, 
patently ra uh, ravishing that it doesn't really, it, it's though it was authored by God, which is great poetry can do. Um, but in an essay, I need to know who wrote it. I need to know who they are. I need at least clues about how they think. I want clues as to their background, and I need to know that in some sense, the matters being talked about are urgent and personal. So I launched this Confessions of an Ex-Mormon, which was not my title for it, which I thought was an uh, illicit way to, to title something. It made it sound like I was going to talk about secrets of the Mormon temple and, you know, reveal mysteries and so on, or, or, or scandalous uh, details, when it, in fact it was a very heartfelt portrayal of my experiences uh, among Mormons. And it went out and immediately, it was the first time I'd written something of that magnitude in the Twitter, world, in the Twitter era. Immediately, Twitter was filling with retweets and uh, you know, discussion of this piece. And you could see when you went on the New Republic website a count of how many reads it had been given. And they were shooting up. I mean, they were way beyond the numbers uh, that represent the circulation of the magazine. And it became clear to me that it was being read by Mormons. It was being read by people who um, had every right to be somewhat disappointed in me because I talk about why I didn't go on a mission and I talk about my problems with the theology and I, and I, and I do a lot of you know, ambivalent arguing with myself about my experience. But somehow the authenticity of the piece and the sincerity of its attempt to grapple with what was obviously a problem for me struck the people for whom it wasn't a problem. It wasn't ex-Mormons who read this piece, it was faithful ones who said, thank you for giving the rest of the world a real, genuine, and affecting, and, and sort of unexpected portrayal of what it is to be in this community. And, 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 and I mean, it reduced me almost to tears when I would get these letters. Uh, thank you for helping the world understand us. Um, I can't tell my friends, but I have these same conflicts myself, but I so love my neighbors and my family that I set them aside. And I was in suddenly a incredibly intimate, almost embarrassingly um, close relationship with thousands of readers in a way I hadn't been. And I think only an essay can accomplish that. You know, you might think you know the writer of a, of a novel, but you don't really. They, they're wearing a mask. Uh, you might think you know a poet, but you really don't. But the directness and the um, uh, humanness of the essay allowed me to have a connection that I couldn't imagine before. And since then, uh, I, I, I've tried always to make it a principle of my essay writing, that this does not come from the Pope, this does not come from the voice of uh, you know, absolute uh, authority or knowledge on any subject. This is my best try at some big subject that concerns us all. And I al always try, in the end, to be my own worst critic. You know, I, I try in an essay to argue myself out of positions that might seem a little too pat. Um, 
I try to tell stories. I try to, you know, draw from all kinds of thought, whether it be sociological or so on, because finally what I'm trying to do is show you what it's like to be me thinking. Um, you all have a pretty good idea, having experienced this rather wayward lecture. You know, um, you know, he he he's basically a hairball uh, creator. Um, you, you know, but but it's the form that at the moment I'm most happy with, and it's experiencing a renaissance in America, partly because essays are shorter than other uh, forms of you know prose literature. Uh, they seem suited to the world of the internet. Also, because we do live in a time of fractured attention, where we're used to movies that are quickly edited and TV shows that are interrupted by commercials and so on, there's something about the uh, jazziness of the essay that seems to suit the temperament of the times. You know, it, it, its ability to hold contradictions and to, as I say, improvise on a theme uh, is, I think, amenable to the kind of somewhat distracted, uh, fractured, slivered uh, experience that we now have of the world. And in fact, more literary stars are being made and minted in, in the sort of high New York publishing world uh, in the essay form than in almost any other suddenly. You know, if the 70s and 80s were about the short story, if the 50s and 60s were about the big novel, this period seems to be about the essay. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, one final thought before I open this up, and I'm not sure how much time I've used. Um, can, do you know, Doug? A solid hour. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's that digression about living in that uh, thing. I, you know, and, and it's also my own vanity. You know, when laughter comes, I'm, you know, I'm like Bill Clinton. More, more. Yeah, um, I saw Bill Clinton get up and say, I'm only going to be able to speak for 10 minutes once. And two hours later, you know, I want to say, stop clapping. You know, this man feeds on it. Uh, but, but finally, I want to say this about your essays. Because I, as I started to say at the beginning, you're all essayists already. You've all done it. Um, you've done it for class. You've done it uh, to gain admission to something or introduce yourself. Here's a way that you can kind of go to the next level, since I, I, I assume you've already tried and to some degree mastered the first level. Um, try to not only express your own certainties in essays, but See yourself from other perspectives. Um, incorporate the arguments against what you think. When you make an argument, don't make it only in logical terms, unless that's the exercise, but make it in personal terms, if possible, if appropriate. Um, look at the essay as an uh, um, attempt or an opportunity to graph your experience of things at all levels, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, cultural. And in that way, you, I think, will find yourself 
um, discovering yourself in the same way I discovered myself writing that Mormon essay. I, I found out, for one thing, I had a heart. I found out uh, <laughs> in another way that I, that I um, respected a religion which I had actually been rather sarcastically dismissive of. And an essay really finally, and the very best ones, are acts of discovery on the part of the writer in which you discover how you work, how you think, and how you really feel. And when you communicate that sense of self freshly discovered to the world, you will find you make amazing connections with your readers and you know, with your other fellow writers, students, and so on. So if there is a space for that kind of writing in your world, I urge you to push the boundaries. And I'm very grateful that you listened to me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Walter Kern's talk at New St. Andrews College, The Art of the Essay.